Happy Monday and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. You know, I thought I was going to have to cajole Bill Crystal into talking about football this weekend, the best weekend of NFL football, except if you're a Packer fan, of course, or or I suppose maybe a Bills fan. I think it's worse being a Packers fan. But Bill, I, I see that you were watching and you actually tweeted about it this morning. So we can talk about football. By the way, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Happy to be on. It was now I watched most of the games and the last three quarters or so of the last game, which was really oh. the last quarter, last two minutes was just <laughs> unbelievable. Buffalo and Kansas City. Just unbelievable. I mean, and clutch playing by the quarterbacks, but also actually the wide receivers and others. And uh yeah, it's kind of amazing. No, I, I tweeted that I, you know, I've always preferred baseball or football or thought I should prefer baseball to football or had a kind of ideological view that baseball was the true American pastime. But I, it was a little bit challenged this past weekend, I've got to say. But then, as I, as I said, that, uh, the ghosts of the 1969 Mets and 2004 Red Sox came to me and I, re, I reaffirmed my allegiance to baseball. But this, this weekend was a challenge. It was a challenge to that allegiance. Oh, my, before, I mean, as, as, as you tweeted out this morning, we had been reliably informed that the NFL was dead, right? That, that right. real Americans were no longer watching and following the NFL. And then the NFL responds by having four amazing games you know in every one of the games it came down to the last play every one of the games yeah that's amazing I, and also we were informed that if you know if some people took a knee and do it yeah. nice to colin kaepernick the moral fiber of the nfl was gone the toughness the grittiness wimps. the wimps not no ability to function in the clutch i mean you look at those guys and uh that's one thing you can't say about an awful lot of those players this last four days, including the losing players. I mean, how about uh, Brady, you know, <sighs> coming back from what is it, 27-3, I guess, and then losing at yeah. the very end? How about uh, the Bills? So uh, pretty and impressive. And, pretty we, impressive. and we, we have to do this. I confessed over the weekend that I was suffering from very some very severe cognitive dissonance because I was very disappointed that the Packers uh, lost at home the way they lost. Uh, it was just a crushing loss. I mean, having dominated uh, the 49ers so completely mm. to go on and lose that on the last second field goal. So, I mean, it was a crushing defeat at home at Lambeau, et cetera. But I also have to you know, admit that having a certain amount of uh, – Something that felt like Schadenfreude about uh, Aaron Rodgers. You know, it's a. It was interesting all the dunking on Aaron Rodgers that was going on, and normally in Packer land there'd be a lot of pushback. Like, hey, don't pick on Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers is our guy. Leave Aaron Rodgers alone. I wasn't getting that. I I, I think that there was that people are just like done with it. Yeah. I mean, they're partly done with COVID, which leads to a certain kind of uh, reaction against too much, too many public health restrictions and so forth, which I guess you might say helps the, the right or the Republicanish kind of view of, you know, the public health people overreach. But they're also done with the unvaccinated, not just being irresponsible themselves, but then lecturing the rest of us. And I, I've always wondered whether there wasn't more political opportunity there, not to politicize everything here, but I mean, for the Democrats, for Biden, for people who are more pro-vax, and especially if they could modulate the sort of, uh, you know, make sure they're make clear there for also for getting the kids back to school and so forth. But, uh, you know, two, three quarters of 75% now of adults have been vaccinated. A lot of them have had boosters, not as many as should have, but, uh, and the, the celebration on the right of the anti-vax movement, the anti-public health movement, real cookery, you got to think that that could be wrapped around the necks of some of these Republicans. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, just on Aaron Rodgers, I mean, obviously should have spent 
more time, you know, watching the game film than, than listening to Joe Rogan. But speaking of uh, unvaccinated in the category of stories you just cannot make up, the Sarah Palin New York Times libel suit was scheduled to begin today. And amazingly enough, Sarah Palin, who is unvaccinated, tested positive for COVID. So her own lawsuit will be delayed because of that. Wow. Yeah. Who knew? Beyond parody. Okay, speaking of anti-vax, maybe you can explain this to me. There was the big anti-vax. Before, before we get into the other usual stuff, n- including the, the latest coup memo that we've seen, this anti-vax rally in Washington, I don't know how big it was. It didn't seem to be you know, a mass movement, but certainly aggressive, uh, certainly militant, and featured, and this is what's so weird about it, because it, it's now become the right that has become obsessively anti-vax. And I guess I'm old enough to remember when folks on the left were the ones who were into various conspiracy theories. And so there was this moment where Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is speaking at the rally. This is the son of Robert F. Kennedy, uh, who was a liberal icon in the 1960s. Of course, uh, he was tragically murdered in 1968. So here's RFK Jr. speaking at this anti-vax rally yesterday. Even in Hitler, Germany, you could... You could cross the Alps into Switzerland. You can hide in an attic like Anne Frank did. I visited in 1962 East Germany with my father and met people who had climbed the wall and escaped. So it was possible. Many died truly, but it was possible. Today, the mechanisms are being put in place that will make it so none of us can run and none of us can hide. Oh, Bill... Jeez, I just, this is too early in the week to drop my F-bombs. They're just, but is he saying that it's worse now than in Hitler's Germany? It's worse than in East Germany? At least in Hitler's Germany, you could hide in the attic. But here, they're just going to come and get you. And they're going to give you a life-saving vaccine, which is apparently like worse than the Holocaust. Yeah. I mean, I, a couple of just reactions. I, just I have never paid much attention to Robert Kennedy Jr. I, mean, I thought he was kind no. of a, a nut, but unfortunately, sadly for the Kennedys. But I hadn't really heard him, I don't think, in years, I suppose. And it is, there's that weird, slight echo of his father and, and his uncle's you know, intonation and accent there that made it particularly, I thought, odd to hear it and, and creepy in a way. Yeah, I just, I so loathe the invocations of, of the Holocaust, and maybe I'm more sensitive to this. Uh, uh, being Jewish, growing up in New York, where there were many Holocaust survivors, and one knew, and I know uh, some in our, uh, my in-laws' families, and so forth. Um, and uh, it, it just that so, so cheapens everything, and it's so uh, really despicable that I, I just, you know, that by itself just sort of sends me, sends me off. I don't know. There's a pretty good piece by Chris Steyerwalt, an interesting piece by our friend Chris Steyerwalt over at the Dispatch this morning that I'll just describe it and say it kind of has the opposite effect of what he hoped. So he's saying it's bad, the anti-vax stuff. You combine the anti-vax with the big lie stuff. It makes you wonder how credulous people are and how swept up so many people are in totally unsustainable conspiracies. But he then sort of tries to reassure us at the end you know, probably after the Republicans do well in 2022, this is just, uh, you know, a socialization, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, not a sort of socialization, my mind's going, the kind of socialization where you just hate the other side, and so they're latching onto this. But it, it probably doesn't stay as a permanent yeah. part of the kind of Trumpist right 
for 2024. That's kind of what he, he argues mildly, yeah. while, while paying, saying it's a serious problem right now. But it's cut, for me, it's the opposite. I and mean, for me, the craziness of the big lie is bad. But you can see that it has a political intention and, and there's a political utility to it. And so it's not, it's, how should I put it, it's not irrational in that sense. It's irrational in the fact that it doesn't care about the facts in the extent, to the extent it doesn't care about the facts. But it's not irrational in the sense that its political utility is clear. The anti-vax thing has always struck me as crazier, uh, deeper kind of conspiratorialism it, it, because it's self damaging if you don't take the vax or get boosted. Um, and you would think even self-limiting is a political matter, but surely that's not where a majority of Americans are going to go. But the fact that it's caught on so much and become so much a core part of, of not just fringy Trumpism, but really Trumpism altogether and Fox and so forth, I, I think that's more disturbing, not less. So I think Chris's piece, which is worth reading, it, ultimately, it, for me, cuts the other way, that things are worse than you think if you've got both an so election too. big right. lie going on and a, a legitimation of what were previously viewed by every sensible person on the left and right as totally fringy anti-science, anti-medicine type theories. Right. And that's now locked in. And it's kind of funny how, because now we have the distinction between Trumpism, which has taken on this life of its own, and Trump himself, who actually occasionally will say reasonable things about the vaccines. But the, the Washington Post had a story about this, uh, this rally yesterday and had some said, you know, as, as anti-vaccine activists from across the country prepare to gather on the steps of Lincoln Memorial, they're hoping their rally will mark a once fringe movement's arrival as a lasting force in American society. That hope some public health experts fear is justified. Almost two years into the coronavirus pandemic, the movement to challenge vaccine safety and reject and reject vaccine mandates has never been stronger. An ideology whose most notable adherents were once religious fundamentalists and minor celebrities is now firmly entrenched among tens of millions of Americans. So here we are the country that gave the world Jonas Salk, and we are now exporting this reckless disinformation. And just it felt like a year ago or two years, two years ago, three years ago, there was this near universal consensus about the life-saving qualities of vaccine. That's been completely trashed by the culture wars and the stupidest of all timelines. And go back to the Washington Post. Right? That propaganda has also found its way into many reaches of American life. It has invaded people's offices, helped shape the daily decisions of school principals. It has riven families and boosted political campaigns. Our worst worries have been manifested, said Joe Smizer, chief executive of Public Good Projects. And then they lament that the public health universe uh, didn't see this coming and was not able to mount a strong uh, counterattack. And to your point earlier in our, in our discussion, uh, this feels now like a, a lost opportunity that from a political point of view, Democrats should have hammered much harder uh, from a public health point of view, public health experts should have pushed back much more aggressively because now it's a part of life with or without Trump. I think it becomes now a fact of life going forward that you have embedded this kind of disinformation and skepticism in tens of millions of Americans. I don't, and I don't know how to turn that around. Yeah, no, it's interesting if, if depressing. I mean, the public health types, to be fair, it was sort of, I think we're advised, look, don't pick fights. You've got to win these people over, yeah. persuade them with, with uh, 
gentle kindness, not with you know yelling and screaming and embarrassing them. And maybe that was the wrong decision. I do think in, on the more political side, it confirms what's always been our analysis, which is if you don't stand up to the craziness here, yep. if you accommodated here, if you take the attitude, what was the Republican uh, five days after the election? Uh, uh, what's the point humor of- Humor him, uh, yeah. Just humor him, yeah, humor, humor, humor. And, humor. And that's really been broadly Welcome speaking, the attitude yeah. of conservative elites and Republican elections, not just humor him, but humor at all, humor yeah. at all. What's what's really the damage? It's going to go away. Even Chris Dyerwalt, who's better, has a little bit of that in his piece, and you humor it, and you know every step then down the staircase is you don't draw a line, you don't stop, you don't say no more. Uh, maybe a few people get off the staircase to whatever you use the metaphor off the escalator, but but people keep going down, and you see it in every step. Youngkin runs on, let localities determine mask wearing. Don't have a state mandate. Well, actually, he's now got a state mandate or trying to have one against mask wearing in schools. It's not even clear whether he wants it to apply to private schools. Now, various people are rebelling. We'll see what he really does. But he goes one step. Then DeSantis, of course, goes another step into radicalization. And obviously, once you get to Gates and and Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and others, you're in further down the thing. But they each follow the other down the path of extremism, radicalization, uh, legitimizing, uh, or certainly not fighting conspiracy theories. And you see it in the pop- more public popular culture of Barry Weiss, whom I've known, uh, used oh, to know yeah. for years. And it was, you know, sort of a rebel against left-wing political correctness. Now she's basically, as far as I can tell, certainly anti-mask. I can't quite tell if she's anti-vax. Bill Maher is more actually. Mm-hmm. But she's, you know, this is the this the way this pandemic's been managed, one of the greatest atrocities of modern time. I can't remember what she said exactly, something like that. Again, totally unhinged. To- I am wor- worried about the little, you know, little kids, especially from poorer families who have missed a year of school. Obviously, I'm worried about the social effects of the isolation and all this. But the idea that this country can't survive to some some public health measures, and that this is just a catastrophe and a disaster and total discrediting of the public health people who were basically right, it turns out, about the, the danger of the disease of the pandemic. I mean, again, there's kind of, if you don't fight it, if you don't put up the barriers here, it turns out you don't put them up later. You know what I mean? No, I mean, and we've lived through all of that. So over the weekend, a number of indications that all of this is going to get worse. It's going to get more intense in case there was any denial out there about what the 2020, 2022 elections about. Let's, I, I have Newt Gingrich, but I want to start off with Steve Bannon. Uh, Steve Bannon, um, who has really become kind of the id of the Trumpist right. Uh, I know people keep focusing on Fox News, but don't don't sleep on what what Bannon is doing uh, or the number of folks that have been you know going in and bending the knee for his podcast. I know that Tim Miller spent a weekend or a week listening to what what Bannon was doing, and you you need to understand how radicalized folks are getting who are marinating in Steve Bannon's uh, apocalyptic vision. And over the weekend, uh, he made it very, very clear uh, that uh, if Republicans get control, uh, they are not merely going to impeach Joe Biden, but they're going to try to put him in prison. And this seems to be a new theme. Let's play Steve Bannon. You have stood down ICE and you've stood down Border Patrol. And guess what? That's the impeachment hearing I want to hear. Because we're not going to do your crap with all these guys from the National Security Council on the first time or the phone call that did this. No, you're going to sit there for day after day and week after week. And we're going to bring the witnesses. We're going to bring the witnesses of what you did to this country, and what you did on the southern border. Preserve your documents, because after impeach it, then we're going to put you up on criminal charges. Oh. 
criminal charges for allowing this country to be invaded by your actions. Acts of commission, not acts of omission, acts of commission. And we're not going to back down. So write it down. This November is about one thing. It's impeaching Joe Biden to stop this madness and to stop this illegitimate regime from destroying our nation. Mm. Well, at least it's clarifying, Bill, where Steve Bannon is going, where he expects other Republicans to go. And he's been ahead of the curve on Republican and conservative thought. And it's, of course, going to be ignored. I don't expect to see much denunciation of this from our friends at National Review of the Wall Street Journal. Maybe a little bit of you know, clucking. You know, that's not really very helpful. A little extreme. There are problems at the border, but you know, we can't just impeach him and, and, and put him in jail. Uh, and I think two, three, four months from now, it'll be a bunch of candidates will be echoing this. And they'll be saying, look, it's a little unfortunate that they echo this, but we do need to support them. So you can't have the Democrats win these seats. And God knows what will actually happen in 2023 or 2024. But I, I think, yes, to, as, as you say, sleeping on or, or ignoring or minimizing the effect of this would be foolish. He's been for eight years, Bannon has been, I met him in 2013, 14, and he was, we're, look, Bill, we're going to destroy you. We're going to destroy the Weekly Standard. We, I'm a Leninist. We're going to destroy the institutions. We need a thoroughgoing revolution. And I was like, fine, you can, make, you can hope that you, you know, you're entitled yeah, to yeah. make that argument. But I mean, I don't, and I didn't take it as seriously, I guess, as I should have. And and uh, we opposed it, but maybe we should have, I don't know what we could have done, frankly. But mm-hmm. anyway, it would be foolish to assume that candidates don't start echoing that. I'm curious, how many candidates will not go on Steve Bannon's show? How many mm-hmm. candidates for Senate in Ohio, for Senate in, in Pennsylvania, for governorship of these states will will not go on that show, will, will affirmatively distance themselves? And, and I'd say the same about conservative elites uh, as well. Well, to your point, right now it may sound like extremist raving. I think by the, the election or shortly after the election, this will become conventional wisdom. We've seen this process of how the unthinkable becomes uh, thinkable, and then it becomes just, you know, Part of the the atmosphere. I mean, look at look where Kevin McCarthy has has come on on some of this. I stuff. thought your so, exchange with yeah. uh, I don't remember what it was, show it was on with Rich Lowry was very revealing and and interesting in that way. And obviously, he's someone we've all known for years and isn't it per, is personally I think has been and I assume still is a decent person and uh, sometimes a thoughtful person. But the degree to which he was not he's in that accommodating mode and didn't he and he wrote something over the weekend that was very much which I just blanked on exactly what the point was but it very much yeah. struck me as a follow-up to his argument uh, his debate with you yeah he's, uh, he's all in on desantis desantis is the answer this is where the republican party needs to go even though desantis has now moved to the right of trump on some issues right i mean that's no, so. that's that's i guess that was it that that's yeah. kind of the way we save save us from trump by being a little less flighty than Trump, but actually more irresponsible than Trump, at least right. as irresponsible, irresponsible in different ways, I suppose you'd have to say, from Trump, maybe governs a little less irresponsibly, but not entirely. And and we don't know what he would do at the federal level. And all the performative nonsense, I'm going to have a state police force that's going to enforce election integrity, that's going to, that's going to report only to me. We don't think that a little Florida state police force is going to destroy democracy in America, presumably. But it's very much the spirit of Trump and the Defense Department and the memo, the finding about seizing the election, the voting machines and so forth. I mean, in that respect, DeSantis is fully on board a spirit of, I don't know quite what to call it. I mean, what do you think? It's not quite, well, at least quasi-authoritarianism. Yeah, well, and and, and sort of free-form demagoguery. I mean, I, I, our colleague Amanda Carpenter has a really great piece for the Orlando newspaper 
where she describes sort of his the secret that he you know picks up uh, some meme from the internet and then he tries to jump ahead and and claim that he's a leader. So he's he's always sort of you know ch- chasing the will of a wisp. I think part of this is this clearly erroneous but this myth that that people like Rich Lowry and others tell themselves that that really the only real problem in the Republican party is Trump's personality if you just right. got rid of the mean tweets if you just got rid of his his erratic character then everything goes back to normal that everything is going to be okay when obviously the rot is i mean if we've learned anything it's that the rot was is a lot deeper and that the dysfunction was very much a pre-existing condition. I mean, I, I find that very difficult to watch what's happened on the right, the kinds of things, including the vac- anti-vax movement that we've seen, and not say, okay, there was something there, and you and I have talked about this before, I've called it the recessive gene that was always there, that now it's dominant and will continue to be dominant, even if Donald J. Trump leaves the political scene. Yeah, and that's much, that, and that's something they're not willing to acknowledge. I, I totally agree. And Trump made it much worse with four years yeah. of his presidency and four years of encouraging others to, in a sense, uh, compete to be his followers and then to outdo him. And so it is a bit of a vicious cycle at that point. And, you know, and I've been thinking a fair amount this last week or two. You thought a lot about this when you wrote the book, and mm-hmm. you know about our own responsibility or going along more than we should have, or at times suggesting sure. things that were not unreasonable. I don't think in context. But I now think we're, we're small parts, I hope on the whole small parts, accommodating of, of irrationality, demagoguery, a kind of polarization mm-hmm. of a kind of unhealthy sort. And I'll tell one quick story. In 1992, I was Vice President Quayle's chief of staff, and he criticized Murphy Brown uh, for having, uh, you know, lit, uh, sort of normalizing on television the notion that a, 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 a out of wedlock birth it was fine and you shouldn't be critical of it. And we, it was a, actually the speech that Quayle gave in San Francisco to the Commonwealth Club was a very serious speech. It quoted James Q. Wilson and Christina Hoff Summers and people who were, had studied sort of the literature on this and so forth and why it was bad for you know kids who do better in intact families and stuff. It's like a different from a different era even. But then Candace Bergen had tax quail kind of this came out of the blue and said how dare you criticize murphy brown and i thought this was oh that's kind of a fun popular culture fight for us to be in and so and the vice president criticized back and denounced i can't remember the hollywood elites not in a huge way but in a speech you know that they're out of touch they don't understand that middle that america needs to have strong families they can afford this they can they can pay for the you know the 24 7 nannies and so forth but much of america if you don't have a uh, father and mother at home. It's it makes life tougher on the kids, and it was it was well meant, well intentioned. Quail had no, did not have a bean bone in his body about this, but someone in our office, uh, not a you know very much of a junior person, said to me at the time, Bill, you know I I, I understand this fight, and I, I tend to agree with you on the substance, the sociology of, of uh, the cultural sort of analysis that you're in, but why isn't it? Why, why are we denouncing elites? We're not against elites and elitism mm. if it's properly understood, if it's kind of meritocratic and if it's, you know, if they know more or something like that. Maybe we should, yeah, I don't know, should you change that word or take out that rhetorical side? And I was like, oh, look, it's sort of a tradition in American politics and where no one's calling for us to be doing anything terrible to them. We're just saying that they're out of touch with middle America. But even that little thing, it just came back to me for some reason in the last few days that, you know, maybe we should have all been more careful or could have been more careful in the, in that kind of rhetoric uh, as well. No, it's funny you should mention that because I do remember a conversation around that time. Maybe it was even a little bit earlier 
among some very elite conservative intellectuals about how we ought to mount an assault on quote unquote elitism. <laughs> yeah. And and I guess my reaction at the time was, you know, to sort of nod our heads. You know, it's, it, it it was more of a, a populist thing. In in retrospect, of course. Uh, it was ironic that that everybody in this conversation was elite. You'd recognize all the names. Crazy. So speaking of conversations that we had in the past, I want to just set this up. Just you know, you probably have forgotten this, but um, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to get ahead of myself here. Uh, in in terms of the dysfunction being a pre-existing condition, uh, you know, Newt Gingrich has been around for so long that I think sometimes it's easy to overlook the incredible pivotal role that he played in changing uh, the rhetoric and, uh, and, the, and, and the focus of, of Republican and conservative politics. Um, and of course, he continues to do so. Uh, we, we played Steve Bannon a little while ago where he talked about impeaching and jailing uh, Biden and other officials. Well, Newt Gingrich was also on television over the weekend making this threat for members of the January 6th committee who are investigating the attempted uh, overthrow of, uh, of the American Republic. This is Newt Gingrich. You're going to have a Republican majority in the House and a Republican majority in the Senate. And all these people who've been so tough and so mean and so nasty are going to be delivered subpoenas for every document, every conversation, every tweet, every email, uh, because I think it's clear that this, these are people who are literally just running over the law pursuing innocent people, causing them to spend thousands and thousands of dollars in legal fees for no justification. And it's basically a lynch mob. And unfortunately, the attorney general of the United States has joined that lynch mob and is totally misusing the FBI. And I think when you have a Republican Congress, this is all going to come crashing down and the wolves are going to find out that they're now sheep. And they're the ones who are, in fact, going to, I think, face a real risk of jail uh, for the kind of laws they're breaking. Wow. So there's there's Newt Gingrich talking about jailing people on the committee. And we, we've moved past just your garden variety obstruction of justice. Now basically saying, you know, when we get in power, we're going to use our power to retaliate against you. I mean, this is really what the Republican Party has become now, hasn't it? Yeah. And this is, I guess, the most immediate thing that might have triggered this is that they requested that Ivanka Trump uh, testify before the committee or meet with the committee, I'm not sure, but you'd have to be in public, to go over the events of January 6th. And her, she clearly, it's, been, it's well known that she urged her father to do certain things that he may not have done, and they just want to get testimony about what the President of the United States was doing that day. And she was a senior advisor in the White House and it was very much on the scene. That's the request. That's the terrible thing that the January 6th committee has done. That's the lynch mob, right? And it was, a it was someone a request. testify yeah. or appear. And of course, they've also requested documents and other such things. They've done it according to the law. They've gone to court where they've had to go do so. And as the Justice Department has been very, I think, careful and sort of judicious in the way they've tried to investigate what happened and see who was responsible for what. But Gingrich doesn't like it. I mean, Gingrich is such a complicated... If he really is that complicated. I, one wants to think he was a complicated figure because people like me, when I came to Washington in 85, I mean, he was, a, of course, not yet in leadership and he hadn't mounted his challenge to Lady Nine when he became whip and then, in effect, forced Michael out and became leader in 93, 94. You know, Gingrich was, well, it seemed well-educated. He certainly read a lot. He was very facile. He Historical allusions flowed off his tongue. He read, but he was... If you were like me, came to Washington from the academy and working for Bill Bennett and wanted to, you know, he was seemed like a, 
new, exciting, more intellectual, actually, more populist at the same time, occasionally irresponsible, occasionally flaky, no question about that. But, you know, it's hard to even convey now that people like me, and I'm sort of embarrassed yeah. about this, I guess, you know, felt that no. he was, we didn't think, yeah, we didn't. We weren't uncritical of him. We published stuff in the Weekly Standard very early on, making fun of him and so forth. But we also thought this. Some of this was very valuable, very important, and it just turns out to have been whatever decent things that were in there, to have been totally swamped by the recklessness, the demagoguery, the, uh, the lack of balance, the personal ambition, I suppose, and a bunch of other things. Maybe it didn't have to go that way. I mean, Gingrich is an important historical figure, but as I, I guess I said this on Twitter, that he he's going to go down in history as a mere precursor to Trump. Not as I think so. And so, should I tell my my, my new Gingrich, Charlie yeah, yeah. Sykes, Bill Crystal story? I didn't because, know it was Bill Crystal story, but go ahead. I'll, Bill, I'll well, sit here and suffer. No, no, I'm going to remind you of this because you actually gave me some very, very good advice. So this feels like it's a different era. It's 1995. Um, you know, the Republicans are just taking control of Congress, which I don't think you can overstate what that felt like. It felt like the right. domestic political equivalent of the Berlin Wall coming down for yeah, most of my life. Years. I, I, 40 I years never, never yeah. thought it was possible. I mean, it was right. it was a very, very heady time. And Newt Gingrich was the incoming speaker and had just contracted to write a book. It was kind of controversial at the time because somebody right. was paying him a great deal of money and there was a lot of ethics questions about it. And of course, he had no intention of writing the book himself. He needed a ghostwriter. And he had hired or had tried to hire, I can't remember all the details of it, uh, Andrew Ferguson, who is your mm -hmm. colleague at the Weekly Standard, who um, quickly decided this was a very bad idea. Um, and to make a long story short, because there were book agents involved, I got the job. I was going to you know, write. I forgot that. And you I know. Written, what was your work? You, at that point, you'd written A Nation of Victims or? Prof Scam, A Nation of Victims. Right. I was working on a book on education called Dumbing Down Our Kids. Right. And so my agent called and said, listen, um, we really need someone to do this. Would you be willing to sit down with uh, Newt Gingrich and write this? And, and because it was a very, very heady time, I thought this will be, this will be very interesting. And so I actually spent a few days with, uh, with, with Gingrich, driving around with him, went out to dinner with him, sat in on a meeting he had with the then mayor of Washington, uh, Marion Barry, hmm. which was quite interesting. But as I spent time with him, I became less and less comfortable with the idea because I could see the way his mind worked, which was not necessarily in a linear fashion, how he would just sort of like a whirly gigs, you know, shooting off various weird ideas and there was just something off about it. And, and and I remember starting to think, do I do I really want to take, you know, months of my life off to try to make these these rather incoherent thoughts into something coherent? You know, not to mention the fact that there was kind of this cloud about it. And so this is where you come in, because we were doing our, our radio show live from the Capitol. And, um, you know, we had Gingrich on and we, we had the majority. Who's the majority leader? Now I'm forgetting his name. This is so Dick Army. Dick Army was on. Um, and, and I think you were on. And I and I, I pulled you aside and I said, listen, I just I, I, I have to ask your advice. I I've been talking to Andrew Ferguson about this and why he chose not to write it. And what do you think? You know, I had the contract, which was, you know, pretty for for me at the time was 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 not something to sneeze at. Right. And you probably don't remember the conversation, but you said you shouldn't do it. Is that right? I don't remember this at all, honestly. Okay. I, mean, I remember the era. It, it was some of the most important advice I have. Wow. And you said you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't be anyone's ghostwriter. He hmm. said, you're writing a book. And if you do this, first of all, he doesn't care about anything you say. 
you, you have no in, input into all of this. And I don't think it's in your interest to be a ghostwriter when you are an author in your own right, which, of course, coming from Bill Crystal was extremely flattering to a much younger self. But it was also really sound advice. And it was because of you, Bill, that I went back to my agent and said, you know, I, I'm just not doing this. Oh. I can't. I cannot. I am not going to get on a plane and fly down to Georgia and spend a month doing this or or whatever it was or following him around in the car, trailing as he spun off his various ideas. And so that's how I ended up not being the ghostwriter to a book that I can't even remember what he said or whatever. I yeah, I can't remember exactly. It was a big deal for me, but it was Sorry. you. you actually warned me off. So this was... I won't say this was the best advice you ever gave me because you've given me much good advice, but this was certainly some of the most memorable advice for my much younger self. Well, that's not, I guess nice to hear that I uh, gave you good advice, even if it cost you a little bit of money at the time, I'm sure. Andy Ferguson subsequently wrote fantastic pieces about getting rich in 97, 98 in the Weekly, in the weekly Standard. And when it became clear how much the ego, how crazy the egomania was and, the, and, and, and it was just swamping whatever intelligent thoughts he had about replacing the yeah. welfare state with an opportunity society and so forth. And, and then the, the willingness to be reckless in the partisanship, which really is a precursor of today's kind of polarization, I think. So let's, let's fast forward to uh, where we're at right now. And it seems like every other day or so, we get some new bit of information about uh, how serious this coup was. And of course, you had been saying, you know, I, I am alarmed in retrospect we all should have been alarmed, but it turns out to be even worse than we thought. At least that's my takeaway right now. The memo over the weekend that we found out, the, the draft memo describing, in effect, martial law, the Defense Department seizing the voting machines. Your, your, your thoughts about that memo, the fact, of course, it wasn't issued, but the fact that it exists, what does that tell you? So it's a draft finding, weirdly enough, for those originally characterized as executive order by people. And the findings are really used mostly to, uh, you know, for covert activities, and it's what you need to do legally post, I think, the 1974-75 legislation to justify, a president needs that to justify, I don't know, you know disrupting the Iranian, you know, uh, nuclear program or something. So they're classified normally. And this thing is done, it's sort of a cartoonish thing. Of course, when you read it, it's like, you know, it's not like any real finding one has ever seen in government that's carefully done by general counsel, CIA, and vetted, and, you know, very careful citation of real authorities. Having said that, it's it's not totally unlike those. And so it's not, it's not the kind of thing, in my opinion, that Sidney Powell or Lynn Wood or even Rudy Giuliani, people who have not been in the federal government, or Giuliani hadn't been for decades, uh, and who didn't have access in a way to sort of other such findings. A lot of them are classified. It's not something you can just write. It's not like, I don't know, uh, op ed, right? So it does for me, it brought home for me that even if it was based on a lot of the material had been assembled by people like Sidney Powell, that seems to be the case now. And a lot of it therefore replicated kind of crazy election conspiracy arguments about China and so forth. And again, that was the foreign policy hook that made mm -hmm. it possible allegedly to be a finding. The reason, if you look at the document, he, the Defense Department seizing these machines, the ostensible reasons of foreign interference, that's what makes it possible to do a finding. That's also what makes it even more alarming because that would have the finding is secret, it's classified. DOD is being involved, not just, you know, the Justice Department or Homeland Security, even. Uh, presumably, intelligence agencies would be involved in some of this as well. This guy Ratcliffe, remember, was director of national intelligence at the time and was a pretty fervent Trumpite and uh, maybe misusing national intelligence. So 
again, was it going to happen? Were people at DOD and CIA really going to do any of this? I, I said, not, thank God, because they had pre-Trumpy people in them. But it does show a degree to where I do think senior people in defense who had intelligence backgrounds were involved in this. I don't know individually who it was, but hard to believe that Cash Patel and these people weren't, weren't involved one way or the other. And again, it's not just one person can sit at his computer and do this. You probably have a team and so uh, some people researching it and so forth. So it shows how the interpenetration of the, the outside kookiness, which we've all seen a million examples of, yeah. it's very vivid, and the internal uh, danger of people burrowing inside to try to make stuff happen. It didn't, it didn't work. It didn't happen. It didn't come together. They didn't have enough burrowers on the inside, actually, nor enough, probably, credibility on the outside to make it work. But they tried, and you know, in the future, they will be much better at the burrowing and the uh, inside game. And so it, it, these, these, these coup attempts, or I guess let's just say these uh, attempts at illegal activity by the federal government, always have, often it turns out, I was thinking about this over the weekend, have an outside and inside side to it. You know, you have your G. Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt, former government people who are now just outside characters, uh, you know, doing a burglary, right? But they're doing it in connection with, at the encouragement of, under the orders of people in the government and the people in the government cover it up and stuff. You don't quite have the cover-up thing as much here, but you do have that kind of inside out. And it, but in Watergate, they all went to jail. Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, you know, because of their uh, involvement in that. How could the people who were involved in this on the inside, Mark Meadows clearly knew about this, did nothing to discourage it. In fact, if anything, encouraged it. I don't really see, honestly, how is Mark Meadows less guilty of crimes than H.R. Haldeman? So I was listening to your conversation with Jonathan Carl, which seems really relevant to all of this. Of course, Jonathan Carl from ABC, who's written the book uh, Betrayal. And, and the way you guys were you were discussing uh, the personnel, this whole issue of personnel that, you know, Johnny McEntee, you know, mm -hmm. the royal personal assistant who who was put in charge of presidential personnel. And and, and you know, there's a lot of what ifs here if he would have succeeded in installing loyalist toadies in all of these positions what would possibly have happened and and the, i was again i was listening i can still remember you know, sort of jonathan carl's voice in my head where he talks about having lunch with somebody uh who was very very loyal uh to to, to donald trump uh this was somebody he describes him as very prominent important official in the national security space during the trump administration uh not a deep state guy and he said to uh, Jonathan Carl at the end of the interview, I'm just horrified at the thought of what a second term would have looked like, who would have been in the cabinet. And so all of this, I think, it needs to be looked at in the context of, OK, it didn't work this time. But what if you had a Johnny McEntee completely bananized Trumpist cabinet? What would a second Trump term look like? Yeah, absolutely. It would look presumably more like the last year than like the first three, because the first three, the Trumpist elements were contained and actually eased out when you think about it. Bannon was fired by John Kelly, the White House chief of staff, uh, McMaster, and then Bolton kept things sort of under control at the National Security Council. They refused to go along with what Rudy Giuliani, what, what Bolton characterized as this crazy drug deal that Giuliani and those people were cooking up in Ukraine. Fiona Hill was there at the National Security Council. Alex Finman was there. I mean, all of them are gone by early 2020. McEntee is put in a presidential personnel. 
in a weird way, you could argue the pandemic maybe distracts them from doing what they might otherwise have done, getting rid of people like Esper and, from defense and Haspel from CIA earlier. Now, would the system have risen up in protest? Would Senate Republicans have said, no, that's just a bridge too far? I don't know. I'm not so sure yeah. they would have. You know, They might have said it, but they, would they have actually insisted that you can't just put acting people in all these jobs and so forth? Um, I remember at the time, though, you and I discussed this so much in December, the, yeah. the resignation, the, the firing of Esper on November 9th or 10th, whatever that was, and then the resignation of Barr. I mean, those two things were, if, if that were happening in a foreign country, you president loses an election, he contests it, he says it's been stolen, and suddenly the defense secretary's gone and a bunch of really people who could never get confirmed are stuck in in acting positions, insensitive ones. And then the attorney general, who's pretty loyal to Trump, leaves. He might have told us at the time a little bit more about what was going on instead of issuing some letter full of praise for Trump. Uh, and then it turns out his own deputy, I guess, Rosen, who takes over, who people had doubts about, even he wouldn't do certain things. And then they wanted to replace him with Clark. I mean, the degree to which, it, luckily it was last minute. Luckily, they only had a few months. They were distracted by the re-election and by the pandemic and other things. Luckily, Pence was still there in a way as the last pre-Trump person in a funny way. Uh, Meadows was had taken over as chief of staff. And uh, so Kelly and those people were long gone. I mean, but now, where's the party? is more of a Mark Meadows, Johnny McEntee party than a H.R. McMaster and John Kelly or even Mike Pence party, Right. That, that yeah. to me, is what people just haven't come to grips with. No, and you made that point in your conversation with, with Jonathan Carl that, that most of the people who eventually did push back against this were part of the pre-Trump Republican Party, and the question is whether or not they would be around. It's interesting that uh, Bill Barr apparently is talking with the January 6th committee, which is— uh, Yeah, and maybe Jonathan, John says in the conversation that he was startled by what Barr told him when he finally got to Barr finally acceded to mm -hmm. his interview request and he went over to his house here and, and had the discussion and that he thinks it could have a big effect if he says it publicly uh, mm -hmm. on, t on television testifying before the committee. I don't know. Maybe people just discount everything and, you know, it'll be another Mueller situation where the public testimony doesn't end up mattering much. But uh, I think the January 6th committee is is underrated as a kind of possible I think so too. bit of a game changer. But again, Incidentally, who's the person who's making that really happen and saving it, I think, for being totally uh, uh, possible to say that it's just a partisan Democratic thing? Liz Cheney, who's sort of the last pre-Trump Republican who's willing to stand up to Trump and to Trumpism in a way that all the Rich Lowry's and, uh, you know, all these other senators and members of Congress uh, are either keeping their head down or or or, or going along, or, or in some cases, of course, worse than going along and, and just uh, encouraging the craziness. Well, and that's the, the criticism is that, it, that she's sacrificing her relevance when, in fact, right now she is far more relevant than any of the backbenchers who are keeping their heads down in order to maintain she's their more relevance. relevant to actually saving yeah. democracy in the Constitution. Yes. That's right. I guess that was yes. really was the pivot of your conversation right. with Lowry, right? And that's why, yes. yeah, I guess I'd forgotten that for a second. Yeah. And that's why that was so, I think what you, your arguments are yeah, so important, and I'm, I'm glad you then followed up and wrote a little more about it too. It's, it's what, it is sort of astonishing that that, for, for, it, for the editor, who's now just stepped down, of National Review, that a principled conservative and a genuine conservative uh, standing up for the Constitution and for the rule of law in America that's a tactical mistake. That makes her, quote, irrelevant. She, you know, that's, I think, was the term he used, right? Or she mm -hmm. has a future on CNN, but not in the Republican Party. Well, if she doesn't have a future in the, in the Republican Party, in the old days, I think, 
uh, a, a, many people associated, not all, but many people associated with the National Review would have said, well, then there shouldn't be, uh, you know, then we don't want to be part of this Republican Party. But that's not the case today. It is not the case today. Bill Crystal, thank you so much for uh, getting our week off to such a great start. Thanks for joining me again. Uh, thanks, Charlie. My pleasure. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.